Hello. Hi. My name is Leonore, or Leonore Inez Ortega-Till, and if you're David Glasspool and you're on Facebook, I'm sorry you have to hear my long name all the time. So, <laughs> David wanted me to mention him because he has a great sense of humor, and there might be humor in my sermon, but not as much as you will get as if you hang out with David Glasspool. <laughs> All right, so we are in um, studying the book of Mark, and today we're going to study another one of the stories where the disciples are struggling with faith, faithlessness. I know, right off the bat, the disciples are struggling with faithlessness, and this seems weird right off the bat, because these are 12 Jewish men, the men that Jesus has chosen to pursue, that have seen him preach and teach and heal. And yet, time and time and time again, they are faithless. Sometimes we get stuck believing that those that are in the ministry come equipped with constant faith. And that is so not true. I'm going to take you on a little side side track here. I want to tell you about a very special person. Um, back when I was in Five Iron, we would tour. And sometimes in exchange for playing shows, we would get to see really cool places in the world. So um, the president of Five Minute Walk, his name was Frank Tate, he called up different families in Alaska, actually different churches, and he got host families for us to stay with while we were in Alaska. So these families would open up their houses and their couches and their floors for all eight of us young punk rock people to sleep in and would drive us around Alaska and show us places. And um, so they split us all up. And we got together, and I remember meeting at the church, and talking to some of the other guys that were in the band. And I said, yeah, I'm with a married couple, and they're pretty chill. They're boring, not much to speak about. And the guys were going on and on and really excited about the family that they were staying with. And I said, what's so interesting about the family you're staying with? And they said, well, did you meet the mom? I said, no. What what about her? Does she wear cheesy Christian sweaters? And they're like, oh, yeah, she does. Uh, But there's something else. I was like, what? Does she homeschool all of her eight kids? And they're like, oh, yeah, she homeschools tons of kids. I was like, what? And they're like, well, something weird about her. And I was like, does she have a bunch of wooden crosses and, you know, Thomas Kincaid? And they're like, yeah, she has that. But what's weird about this woman is she says hallelujah a lot. And I met her, and she did. And she talked like this. And I met her, and she had really long red hair. And she kind of looked like the woman in Scrooged, you know, the fairy that beat up Bill Murray. She looked like that. And she'd say, oh, hallelujah, five irons here visiting. Hallelujah. We're so happy. And welcome to our house. You're welcome to eat anything. Praise God. We have breakfast today. And we have chickens in the backyard. And they have eggs every morning. Hallelujah. And I, <laughs> I had never met anyone like that in my life. And she stood out to me big time. Um, this woman, we, we gave her a nickname, Hallelujah Ann. Not to her face, but we started calling her Hallelujah Ann. And because um, we were there like two weeks. Uh, Hallelujah Ann had a lot of faith. And she gave God credit for the minute, detailed, tiny, teeny little everyday things in life. Um, and today we're going to study the disciples. And they do not seem to give God very much credit for even the most miraculous things. So... Um, Let us pray, and then then I'll start. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for today. 
Thank you for everybody who is here. I pray, God, that if you want to say something that is not in my notes, that I would be cool with it and that I'd be able to track with you. I pray, God, that everything that I say would be of you and not of me. So, yeah, be glorified. You are awesome. Amen. All right, so we are going to start in Mark chapter 6. We're going to have the verses up there. You can read along, or if you have a Bible, read along. Starting in verse 42 which is one of the most interesting and challenging chapters in Mark. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gethsemane and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Okay, so if you recall, Mark likes to say immediately, immediately, immediately. He doesn't like details. He likes to get going. If he was a director, he'd be like Tarantino. If he was in a band, it'd be speed metal. He's always on to the next, which is cool if you like concise, and maybe that's why Scum is studying Mark, but sometimes it's good to look at other Gospels to see what the depth of the story is going on. Anyway, here it says immediately, immediately Jesus sends his disciples into this boat, and he goes to a mountainside to pray. We have to remember what was being studied last week because it just took place immediately, right before this immediately. Um, This is when the 5,000 are being fed from fish and bread. This is the miracle. So I'm going to read back because otherwise what's happening now is not going to make sense. Um, Starting back in verse 39, Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. He then gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten were 5,000. So something pretty miraculous, clearly miraculous. And it probably was more like 10,000 people because that just records the men. So you can consider they had wives and children um, and other people that maybe weren't married. So now Mark tells us that Jesus had basically pushed the disciples onward immediately toward Bethsaida while he goes to a mountainside to pray. Verse 47, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them when they saw him walking on the lake. They thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Okay, wait. (laughs) 
when we were studying this in my women's Bible study, you know how the Bible has little headers like Jesus walks on water? I wrote comma and or is a ghost. This is really weird. What is Jesus doing here? Um, according to the Jews, only two things can walk on water. Apparently, the Jews believed in ghosts. And apparently, they believed that the Sea of Galilee was haunted, especially at night. Um, also, the ancient Jews had a lot of different verses that showed God walking on water. Um, three different examples. The book of Job in 9.8 says, He alone stretches the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Psalm 19 says, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, through your, though your footprints were not seen. And Isaiah 51.10, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road on the depths of the sea so that the redeemed could cross over? It's interesting to me that when we talk about Jews, we always seem to think, well, when something happens in their time, they're going to get and remember and understand, you know, scripture, and so they're going to get it. I've said that. I've said that up here before. Oh, well, the Jews would have known. The Jews would have known. They really knew scripture, and they would have known. Well, they don't get it here. For whatever reason, though they knew the scripture, they're thinking it's a ghost, a phantasma in Greek, a phantom, and they don't get it at all. They don't see any correlation from Old Testament, God walking on water, to what's happening now. And I want to read the Amplified Version of the Bible because I love the words that it uses. It says, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and raised a deep, throaty shriek of terror. I would imagine cuss words. Probably, you know, definitely cuss words. For they all saw him and were agitated. I don't know, not agitated. Troubled and filled with fear and dread. But immediately, he talked with them and said, Take heart, I am. Stop being alarmed and afraid. So what were they meant to understand? Let's think about this for a minute. God is walking on the water. It's a big, big, big storm. They've been pushing. He sent them out at evening. Now it's between 3 and 6 a.m. And they've been rowing and rowing and rowing and not getting anywhere. And the Sea of Galilee isn't that massive. So... Here he comes, strolling along and going by them, going by them. What? <laughs> There's a couple different things. Maybe, okay, maybe he's playing the God card. Look, I can walk on water. You can't, right? Or maybe he wants to get to them, but he's being lazy. It's a lot easier probably to walk on water than find a boat and row with your human arms and get to them. So maybe he's just, you know, doing that. Um, I'm not sure if he's trying to show off or what he's trying to do, but... I think I found something. I did a lot of studying and a lot of research, and there's a really interesting thought that a lot of theologians have about what he's trying to do. And I'm going to walk you through it because it's going to make a lot of sense if you've read your Old Testament. Where else in the Bible have we seen God provide for multitudes of people in the wilderness? With, in Exodus, with the Israelites. And what did Jesus just finish providing the people? Bread, Yeah. So perhaps here, there's a link. Well, let's look. Um, there's a time when Moses really, really, really wanted to see God's face. All he wanted to see was God's face. And Moses was kind of like the disciples, only he was doing it solo. And he was really close to God. And in Exodus verse 30, uh, chapter 33, verse 17 through 23, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause 
all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on who I have mercy. And I will have compassion on who I have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So what might Jesus have been doing? They don't get it. They don't see the correlation. He is allowing them in Jesus to see the face of God, the very thing Moses wanted to do that people couldn't do. Now they could do. It's a true epiphany. It's seeing God for who he is, not just what he does. He's not doing anything miraculous necessarily. Well, walking on the water. But it's seeing him for who he is. And, of course, the disciples, in their faithlessness, they don't get it, and they see a ghost. There's a reason, though, that the disciples see a ghost. And I think this is interesting, too, that Mark writes this down. He explains to us why the plan backfired. Is it because they're exhausted from rowing? No. Is it because they're overly superstitious people? No. The answer is in verse 52. Mark writes, They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. That's weird again, because these are the 12, the chosen Jewish men that are going to, you know, get the faith moving, get everything going, and their hearts are hard. This is the same word that is used for hard hearts when Jesus talks about the Pharisees, the bad guys, the overly religious people. And he's, you know, Mark is saying, here, the disciples have hard hearts too. They don't see the connection between his power and their problem. Um, Back to Hallelujah Ann, which is why I mentioned her in the first place. I had never met anyone more grateful for the mundane at least not someone who was more publicly grateful. She wore hallelujahs like Jewish men wear prayer shawls. Um, But hallelujah ands are not very common these days. And in fact, I was one of the people that was sadly making fun of her to a degree. Um, Back then, I was new in my faith. I was just learning what it was like. I still had a group of friends that it wasn't cool to be Christian around. I still could be my hallelujah Leonore in a certain realm, but I could be my... Let's just use BS in different words and not, you know, we don't have to talk about God. And in fact, a lot of times when things went well, I would contribute it to my brains or my looks or my band or my attributes or my country or anything other than God, even luck. Not God, though. God, God doesn't usually come through, you know. And I think it's interesting how a lot of us modern day Christians judge our brothers and sisters when they're overtly Christian. Oh, how embarrassing. That's just Anne. She's a little, you know, in touch with the spirit. Well, what's wrong with that? Shouldn't we be? Shouldn't the worship leaders be? And shouldn't the people making dinner be? And shouldn't the people cleaning the toilets be? And what would scum sound like if one day we overtly praised God and said, Hallelujah, there's toilet paper. Praise God, we're not having peanut butter and jelly. Or praise God, we are having peanut butter and jelly. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, you are here. Thank God you are here. I don't know. We don't have to do that. I'm just saying. <laughs> Please don't I mean, do not do that. <laughs> I'm just saying it's interesting. <laughs> um, it's interesting also that like the disciples, our hearts are hardened, even though 
we haven't always seen the miracles that they've seen. They've seen a lot of miracles up to this point, and they still have hard hearts. But miracles don't always evoke faith. I've seen miracles in my own life, and it doesn't evoke faith. Why is it? I don't know how many of you, but I'm a massive pendulum. And it's sad to say because I've been walking with Jesus a long time. And I can go in one day from, I will die for you, Lord. I get you. Um, Yes, let's quit our jobs and give everything to the poor and go crazy nuts for you. To um, this side where it's like, "Uh uh-oh, how are we going to pay rent? Um, uh Uh-oh, we don't have health insurance. Uh, uh Uh-oh, there are slaves today. And there's modern-day terrible things happening in this world. And how can I even believe in a God that lets this stuff happen in a day? And it's this pendulum swinging and swinging and swinging. And I don't get it. Why, if I've seen miracles and why, if God has seen me through, does the pendulum exist? I guess the only faith in that is that the one holding the pendulum, the glue of the pendulum is God. And, and I do know, thank God I know, he's not going to drop it. So I can swing violently and he lets me and he doesn't drop me. And I appreciate that because sometimes I just need to be me overly emotional and overly freak out because he knows I'm going to come back. Um, And it's interesting because I see God place his hand in different areas in my life. And it's so weird that I don't always give him credit and don't always think he's going to do what he says he's going to do, even though he does. And it's not necessarily about what he's going to do. It's about who he is anyway. Sometimes I just wish I could see him for who he is, despite what he's going to do. It's interesting also that These things happen immediately according to Mark, but Jesus did not immediately rescue the disciples. They're out there from evening, and it's the fourth watch of the night. Have you heard Mike Sayers say, God is a 1210 God? It's kind of like, I needed that to happen yesterday. But God does things when he wants to do them. He doesn't immediately fix the problem. And when the hungry crowd happened, basically the disciples were saying, okay, there's a group of people. They're getting panicky. You taught them, Jesus, now feed them. And, um, or, or send them away, either one. And Jesus is saying, no, you feed them. You fix it. By my power, you can fix it too. You don't just have to be afraid. But he doesn't immediately fix the need. So I kind of wonder what the disciples were thinking all of these hours that they're out there. And I'm super into personalities. So it comes to mind that there'd be people like me that are like, just row harder. You can get it. Just do it. You can do it. And then there's the pessimists, and I won't name any names, but... You know him. Um, and he would say, <laughs> he would say, why are we out here in the middle of the night? We're never going to get it. And then there's the realists that know that the weather's going to change eventually. But none of them are calling upon Jesus. That doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't matter what your personality is. That's the point. That's where you should be going. There's no hallelujah ands. There's nobody that is calling out to Jesus, and everyone's losing it with fear. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. He had calmed the water, and they were amazed because they started to recognize he was God. But we should not be amazed. We don't need to be amazed that our rent is paid. We don't need to be amazed for whatever fear we have. Like for me, it's when my kids are sick. When my kids are sick, desperate mode. That's, that's probably the only time that I get like in severely desperate mode. But I don't need to be amazed that they're going to be get better because God is going to take care of them. I told Mike the story about Hallelujah Ann, and he said, yeah, that lady sounds like she had a blessed chill. I like that. 
I'd like to think that I wasn't a pendulum, but had a blessed chill. It's not, it's not the case. Um, I looked up the word hallelujah, and according to Wikipedia, which is the source of all knowledge, it is a Hebrew word that means praise Yahweh. It's an exclamation used chiefly in songs of praise or thanksgiving to God as an expression of gratitude or adoration. And Anne means favored grace. So we had unknowingly named her, um, thank you God, favored grace. What a cool name for a person. I think she would really like that. Um, I also want to encourage you because it's a really hard thing to pray against a hard heart. And it's a really hard thing to pray for a soft heart. Our, our culture doesn't want us to have a soft heart. And you are going to get trampled if you have a soft heart. I know because I'm the kind of person that will eat breakfast and then suddenly it occurs to me all of the atrocities in the world and I'm crying. But you can't live in that. You can't live in the soft-heartedness all the time. You have to go to work. You have to answer the phone. You have to, you know, go to Starbucks. Whatever you do, you got to do it and you can't be a, a weenie all the time. I don't know. <laughs> but a soft heart also looks like someone who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. And that we can do all the time. And we have to do all the time, especially at Starbucks. Um, in the end of chapter 6, Mark records for us a group of new people, um, soft-hearted people. Listen, listen to the story. These people contrast the disciples, and they do ask Jesus for things because they know he's going to come through. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. So they didn't make it to their original destination, which was Bethsaida. And I map-quested it. It's really cool because on the computer you can put them in and you can see a map and map-quest it, and it's about 22 miles apart, and those places do exist. And uh, Jesus was able to heal people that were in the new place. I wanted to explain to you really briefly the significance of touching the hem of his garment because there's a couple other places in scripture it comes up and we don't really understand the significance. Uh, this is the same hem of the garment that was talked about with Ruth and Boaz. And um, the tassels on the garments are in Numbers. Verse 37 says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garment with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you will obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. So there's a lot on remembering, and there's a few repetitions about I am the Lord, your God. So there's something to be said for remembering. Same as the disciples, had they remembered the miraculous provision, they wouldn't be shaken. And this is not the last time. I'm sorry to say, as we keep going to Mark, immediately he's going to come up again and faithlessness is going to come up again because this is just, this is how Jesus is setting up his kingdom. And these are the kind of people, even though immediately things are happening, Jesus does not immediately ex expect us to get it. He doesn't judge us like that. He knows we're not going to get it. He knows that we are a process. Our salvation is a process. So my question is, who are we 
in this story? Are we like the people who run to him and with our problems beg for healing because we know who God is? Or are we like the disciples who time and time and time again see God come through for them and then the next day are so faithlessness like, faithless like, yeah, what are you going to do now? Well, now we're screwed again. Who, who are we? None of us is without a need in our life, um, though our needs are totally different. Some of us, um, the need is just knowing that it's safe to go to Jesus. That's a huge need. Some of us, it's family stuff or health stuff or relational stuff. You know the list, on and on. But whatever it is, these are things that we can go to Jesus with and truly give them to him and ask him to, to heal, basically. The problem, though, is that when we've been rowing and rowing and rowing, as a lot of us have, actually, not a lot of us, I want to say this, a lot of people that aren't here tonight that used to come to Scum of the Earth got sick of rowing. They gave up. They didn't call on Jesus, and they thought they could row themselves into shore, and they couldn't. And they're not here tonight because they gave up. And we can't be like that. We can't give up. It's a scary place to go. But if you know people, I just want to put that out there, if you know people who were rowing and rowing and rowing and you know, never were rescued, it's not too late. You can go hang out with them and remind them that they don't have to do it on their own. The faithless and the faithful. Sometimes we see glimpses of both in this world, even among Christians. And the faithless and the faithful, sometimes we are both extremes, even in the same day. But I want to remind us of what happened to the disciples in case we're losing hope. After seeing the resurrected Jesus, the disciples in faith spread his message, and they did not get stuck in the strong winds anymore. And they did not shriek in fear anymore. And let us never forget that they gave their lives in brutal ways as the first martyrs. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, we are such children, and we are in such a process, God. I pray, Lord for myself first, that you would teach me to live and act on the reality of what you've done for me and the reality of who you are, not what you do. God, I pray that you can use those moments of faithlessness to remind me how to be faithful. Father, I pray for all of those who have rode and rode and rode and abandoned ship and those of us that are still rowing hard against some strong wind, God, I pray that you would ease our burden, Lord Jesus. I pray, Father God, that when we see you pass by us, we would recognize you and glorify you. And I want to see your face too, just like Moses. And I know people at Scum want to see your face. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see glimpses of you and each other. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. Amen.